Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, we speak with inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. My co-host Joe Stewart and I would like to honor the elders of these wisdom traditions of yoga that originate in India. We also wish to honor the traditional custodians of the land where this podcast is recorded, the Rwandari people of the Kulin Nation. I hope you're doing well, and if you're in Melbourne, that you're coping with this lockdown that seems to be going on forever. We have an amazing guest on today's episode. Her name is Marley Silva. Marley is the host of the podcasts Titus for Titus and always was, always will be our stories. And she's recently written the book, My Titter, My Sister, Stories from Australia's First Woman. Marley is a proud Gamalaroi and Dunghati woman who combines her passion for storytelling and pride in her aboriginality in her work by sharing stories of strength, resilience and inspiration. She's dedicated to uplifting others and demonstrating the diversity of what success can look like. We were so excited to talk to her and learn more. Now, before we get into this conversation, I just wanted to let you know about an exciting project we've just launched. It's called Thrive Northside. Our goal is to celebrate and support local independent businesses in the inner north of Melbourne. We're sharing some of the stories of the people behind these businesses, creating a directory of business support services and opportunities for collaboration, as well as articles by experts on sustainability, marketing and social media. To learn more, go to thrivenorthside.com and I'll leave a link in our show notes. This episode was brought to you by our sponsor, Yoga Australia registering teachers and training courses to ensure that everyone in Australia has access to quality yoga teachers. All right, that's more than enough from me. Let's get into our conversation with Marley. All right, Marley, thank you so much for catching up with us today. Perhaps we could start with just you telling us a little bit about your background and where you grew up. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. So, yeah, I'm, I'm Marley Silver. I am a proud Gamilaroi and Dungadi girl. So my family comes from Moree and Kempsey in northern New South Wales. But I was born and raised and am coming to you from uh, Darawal country south of Sydney, so right around Cronulla Beach, which is a pretty unique place to grow up in, particularly if you aren't your typical kind of white blonde surfy kind of person. I grew up in the midst of the Cronulla riots and it's a place that, you know, made it very clear when you're a bit different to the people around you. And it really shaped my growing up as a an Aboriginal woman and, and my family's experience. And yeah, it's a big part of, of who I am. It's definitely gotten better over the last couple of years, but, and it's naturally a very beautiful place, very beautiful country, but yeah pretty unique space. I always start with that because I think it's a pretty good and important part of the context of who I am now, I guess, and how I ended up in the world I'm I'm in now and doing all the stuff that I do was because at a young age, I was sort of forced to make a decision around what I did with my Aboriginality because it had put me so on the outer to my peers and, and things like that. So yeah, I think I'm I'm already rambling, but um. <laughs> <laughs> that's what a podcast is for. That's perfect. 
And I've heard you share in your book and on your own podcast, like how tough it was being one of like only five Aboriginal students at your school and just seeing how you've gone on to connect to community in a really proactive way, pretty much as soon as you had the opportunity to do so. And you've already started to talk about this, but I'd love to hear about how you've gone on to really actively connect people who might be geographically separated from culture and like to facilitate ways for people to connect with each other and to share stories. Yeah, so I guess that comes again from my childhood. At school, I never felt like I fit in or I never felt 100% comfortable in a space because I was kind of often sort of looked as the token Aboriginal student and it just felt there was a lot of things that happened that now that I look at as some of them quite explicitly racist experiences. But at the time, I just thought were things that everyone kind of had to face if they were different. But yeah, so that was what I was facing in the school environment. And my favorite times of the year or the moments that I craved as a high school student were the moments and the opportunities I was given outside of my school environment to connect with other kids who were like me. So I was a an avid debater and I got to captain the Aboriginal debating team at my school, which was me, my sister, and the one other girl who was identifying at the time. But yeah. I loved it and I begged, I had to beg both of them to do it because none of them wanted to debate, but I was like, please <laughs> let me do it. And we went to this competition that was at the New South Wales Parliament House and we did that every year for from like year eight to year 11 I think and it was my favorite thing in the world one because obviously I'm a big nerd and I love you know doing public speaking and all that kind of stuff but two because it meant that we got to spend these like practice and training days with other Aboriginal kids from all around Sydney and they were kids like me and my sister and I made some really good friends there we also did we were in an Aboriginal dance ensemble that did a big performance once a year that again helped us connect with other students from around the place and I got picked to go on a few leadership camps that were exclusively for Indigenous students. So those were my favourite moments in school and that was where I was able to transcend those kind of geographical distances between myself and students who were like me and be able to hang out and we were all going through the same thing you know even in the schools where there was a much higher population of Indigenous students everyone was still facing the same thing the only difference being that there were more support systems for them there were more kids they could lean on and, and talk to about it and just feel like less alone so I guess that was what I craved all the time growing up and once I left school I was able to find that in the university space, in the, you know, Aboriginal centres at, at unis. And my first job outside of school was as a, essentially working as a mentor in a program that was for, to help Aboriginal kids stay at school and things like that. So I was instantly throwing myself back in that space where I felt most comfortable and where I felt for the first time that I belonged. And after a couple of years of working in that space in the nonprofit sector, seeing a lot of kids struggling with exactly the same things I had and being given a lot of the opportunities that I have and kind of doing a few crazy things um, that I guess influenced me to think a lot bigger and bolder about what I could do essentially. Again, my first year out of uni, I got picked to go 
on another leadership thing, but this time it was in Scotland and there were a hundred young people picked from all around the world. And then I got asked to stay on after it. And I had afternoon tea with Prince Charles, which was really random. Wow. wow. <laughs> and you kind of, you do that at 18. And I had quite a few very big influential people kind of say like you can do anything and who who backed me from from a young age and and then I did a summer course at Stanford University in, in 2016 and it's things like that moments where I was put on a more global platform not necessarily profile wise but just getting that perspective stepping outside of not only geographically of my home but out of my comfort zone and being pushed and challenged and also given the space to dream really big that planted the seed for me to at one point kind of go okay I can create something myself I've seen a lot and I've been inspired a lot and I also have kind of have this fearlessness now to take a risk and to just have a go at something and if it falls on its face that's fine but if it works it works and and that's how I kind of got to building titters for titters it was you know, just just a little idea that I discussed with my sister and we both decided that a, a space where we could see our women at the forefront being celebrated every day and, and not just the absolute superstars of the world, but the everyday woman who's the first in her family to go to university or just got a really great job or is raising five kids, be looked at like the superstar she is, that's exactly what we wanted as teenagers. And that's who we built the platform for. And it got so much bigger than what we thought it would be. And it's done exactly what we wanted it to because the majority of the messages we get and the support and the excitement that that comes around from that community is, is from those girls who remind us of us at that age. And so just for people who aren't familiar with your work, like you guys started out on Instagram, right? Was that the original Titters for Titters? Yeah, yeah. People sometimes get confused because there's Titters for Titters, the podcast that I did with the Mama Mia Network. And sometimes people think that I did that first and that was kind of where the Instagram came from, but it's actually the other way around. And for context, Titter is a, an Aboriginal word that means sister. So it's it, the the title essentially translates as sisters for sisters and yeah we we just started the page and started telling stories about women that we knew and then all of a sudden people were nominating their friends and their cousins and their sisters and all that sort of stuff and through that and through the growth that we got in our first kind of six months I was approached by the Mama Me Network to have a podcast with them which again just really exploded our profile because we were reaching non-Indigenous audiences that we would never have otherwise. And it all kind of just spiralled and, yeah, got got pretty nuts. And somewhere in the middle there I also got offered a, a book deal from a publisher and now DMs. So that's just how the way the world works now, I guess. Instagram can be a pretty wild place and, and that's what, yeah, it started as. But it's it's definitely unintentionally become a lot more than that. And something I love about all your work, like you're all about representation and inspiration, but it's, I'm not sure if it's a conscious choice or just who you are, you really show a diversity of different paths that people can take. Like often we see Aboriginal people celebrated for sporting achievements or for traditional art they create. 
And I could imagine if you're a little kid and you weren't sporty and you weren't arty, like maybe you're into technology because I know this is the case for Ran, while you might see a little bit of representation, if you don't identify with that, it's not as helpful as just seeing that message that you can be anything you want to be. Yeah, well, I, I guess it goes back to I, I feel like it's kind of being a, a phrase that's been overused a little bit at the moment, but you can't be what you can't see. And it's it's so funny you make that point about particularly athletes because growing up that's exactly how I felt is the only successful Aboriginal people that I was seeing on screen were our athletes, were our footballers or so it was even rare to see a female with the exception of Kathy Freeman. We didn't even see that many successful female sports people. And I am the daughter of a former NRL player. So we very much are entrenched in in that kind of to be successful as a black fella, you have to be an athlete. And I, <laughs> I love sport. I've played every sport under the sun, but I've definitely never been good enough to even consider a professional kind of career. So I um, definitely had a lot more talent in, in the books department. So I I think that's that was very much a conscious choice when we started sourcing stories and, and who we were going to focus on. And yeah, that, that diversity within our community is so important for us to exemplify, not only for the next generation to know what they can achieve, but also for non-Indigenous Australia to kind of expand their understanding of, of what it means to be an Aboriginal person. I think that the, we still are put in boxes. I think what, yeah, what an Aboriginal, even, you know, small things like what an Aboriginal person looks like is really something we've tried to expand on on the page as well. All different shades of, of brown are, are still blackfellas and, and and things like that. So it's it's really important, you know, any group on, on earth, it has a diversity within it. There's no one universal experience for any particular kind of person so that was really important to us and and also something that naturally happens anyway because that we really are so diverse I love the like we in your book my titter my sister it just feels like such an expression of who you are and what's important to you and I also got a little message that maybe you were writing it in some ways for younger Marley and for people like you who, you know, were creative and really into reading and were really looking for inspiration in the world. Does that ring true? Were you kind of writing it a little bit for a younger version of yourself or someone like you or did you just have a really broad audience in mind? I, th- I think, I don't know, hearing you say that probably subconsciously that's that's who I was writing for you know particularly in writing my great-grandmother's story and a bit of my grandmother's story those were the stories that I was raised with and the the ones that I constantly kind of have have told myself so and I've always wanted to be able to write them and and put them in a book so um, it was fulfilling a dream of 15 year old Marley so I think that in the same breath it's, it's probably you know subconsciously what I was doing as well and yeah I mean I hope it works I hope it wasn't too specific but I think that that's the the young girl I'm always thinking about that is yeah feels like she escapes to to books to feel a sense of community or whatever because that's definitely what I did and yeah it was such an such an honor to be able to write all the stories that I, I did in in the book, and I hope it has some impact on yeah any other girls who feel the same. 
Oh, definitely. Like it was such a powerful book. And one of the things I loved about it as well is like your writing style, it's really warm and it's really inclusive as though you're just having this conversation with the reader and really welcoming them in. And as a non-Aboriginal reader, I was wondering if you put some of the stuff in there, like especially the more educational stuff about like January 26th and some of the environmental issues and some of the mental health stuff as like, hey, you need to look at this because this is happening in our country where you're living now. But then I was wondering as well if there were also other layers in there that you were writing with an Indigenous reader in mind where you were really sharing some of the more personal stuff and more some of the more family stuff. Did you find yourself kind of code switching a bit as you wrote or did it all just flow out? I, in the first kind of right, it definitely was was just kind of trying to do the women's stories justice each of those who shared with me but going back and and kind of editing I it was actually uh, my publisher made the the comment of me probably assuming the knowledge of of some non-indigenous people which obviously just comes out of habit and obviously things that are common knowledge to me not necessarily for non-indigenous people who don't have a lot of experience with our community so I had to really train myself into going oh okay don't just assume that this person knows this that and the other but when it comes to the more explicit stuff around like let's talk about January 26 and our environment and and climate change and things like that yeah that was that was very important to me because I I I guess I knew that the kind of non-Indigenous people who who might pick this up are are open and willing to learn. And I always say that we're only 3.3% of the population of Australia and we need that other 97% to understand the issues that our mob are facing and see them as Australian issues, not just as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander issues, so we can all care about them and all fight for them to change. So that was, yeah, something that was really important to me and and I wanted this to be educational. And I think that even for Indigenous people, it's educational as well, particularly around the stories of identity and that struggle there with some people, some of the women in there talk about struggling to reconnect with family and this sort of stuff. And I think that unfortunately in our community, there's still a sense of shame when people have been disconnected because of things like the stolen generation. So yeah, I wanted to show people who in that who are in that situation that there's no shame in it and we each have a different experience and there's no nothing that makes you less or more Aboriginal and we should all just wrap each other up and, and care for each other so we're stronger together. So I think, yes, I, I would say there was a bit of chopping and, and changing and, yeah, for, for which of my readers I was writing for and, and that balance, I guess, is kind of reflective of the everyday life as well. You know, I, there's a there's a story in there where I talk about walking in two worlds and that's what we do each day as an Aboriginal person in white Australia, which is essentially, you know, what we live in today. And um, there's things that you've got to consider all the time and different environments you act in different ways, which sounds pretty horrible, but it's not necessarily. It's, it's just in different contexts there's there's things that make more sense or or whatever but yeah it's um I hope that it gives a little bit of an insight into the sort of tightrope walking that that we do every day. It really does and I think something else that you kind of touched on a little bit how 
much feeling isolated and alone can be a source of shame because you feel disconnected from your culture and you really want to kind of honour and learn more and like be held and supported by that community. And I think like a book can be so powerful like that because it doesn't matter where you are in the world, even if you're in a different country, like just through that narrative of reading about that shared experience. And also you share some resources as well that can help people reconnect in a physical way is just so powerful. I really, I love as well, like you do not shy away from some of the really challenging realities. Like one line in particular, we're often told about the intergenerational trauma woven into our DNA but never forget about the strength and resilience in there too. And that's a theme that I just read over and over again in your book. Like there's some really powerful, some really powerful stories of strength and resilience. And I'm wondering if it was one of your goals to kind of uplift and inspire your readers if they were going through their own difficult times or if it was just really like an honouring and a celebration of these women's stories. Uh, I, I think, again, it was really something I was conscious of and and really focused on doing was was putting that resilience and strength and that optimism at the forefront because again that's that's how I live my life I am someone who's relentlessly optimistic and I have to be I I remember kind of being a, a late adolescent and sort of for the first time really realizing the true state of the world and and being frustrated and wanting to save the rainforests and the whales and also my people and being overwhelmed by that. And I remember being so frustrated and, and angry and, and knowing that there's so much injustice and it was all consuming for me. And I had to make a really conscious choice about where you exhaust your energy and, and not feeling guilty about not being so entrenched in the realities of it all. And and it's not about ignoring the, the, the truth, but it's about focusing on what can be done and what you can do as an individual and remaining optimistic and hopeful. I think that that's a, a gift I was given by my culture and by my heritage is this optimism and this resilience because we have been around for over 60,000 years and that's a great privilege and it's not something that everyone gets. So I I am so grateful for that and I think that it's something that I've had instilled in me by my family as well is that yes, there's a lot of crap, but there's also some incredible pieces of gold in there as well. And there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And I hope that, yeah, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I have to live my life like that. Otherwise I wouldn't have the energy to do what I do. There's been days, a friend of mine who runs a, a nonprofit for Aboriginal kids in foster care. And I actually interviewed his sister, Jola Cumming for the book. She's one of my favorite stories in there. I think probably because I know her more personally now and just how, she's just the most incredible woman. But her brother runs a charity called ID Know Yourself that works with kids in care. And the first couple of times I met him, we went and spoke at a conference together. And I found myself like coming away from that trip with him feeling so gutted and angry and devastated by the stories he was telling me about his experience in care and about the 20,000 kids in, in care across the country, Aboriginal kids in care, and how many of them go through this awful stuff and trauma and whatever, whatever. And I was just so all consumed by it. And 
remember we were in Melbourne flying back from <laughs> Melbourne and being really thankful I wasn't sitting next to him on the plane because I just cried the whole way because I just felt so heavy with that. And thankfully, I then had the opportunity to use these these awful stories, but these incredible stories of strength and resilience to to then energize me and then being able to capture his sister Jola's story in the book and and show that even despite all these horrible statistics and these awful situations that these people are, are put in as as babies, they come out they can come out the other side as incredible as they have. And it's things like that that bring me strength. And there are definitely times when I do feel that real sense of, oh my God, we've got so far to go still or nothing has changed in, in some ways. But I, I always try and flip it and, and focus on the success stories or the the examples that prove to us that, that we can overcome and we can get better. And I think you do a really amazing job at that, like really celebrating just the strength and the resilience and the creativity and all the awesome stuff that so many uh, people are doing in the world. Like it's so inspiring. Like just from listening to your two podcasts and reading your book, I've like found out about all these amazing designers and amazing artists. And I think that it's really powerful for non-Indigenous people to read about Aboriginal people in a really positive sense because it's insane that there, is, there isn't there is as much representation of all of the amazing stuff that all of these people are creating all around Australia. And I think in some ways people outside of Australia get a different perspective on it. So yeah, like thank you so much for sharing <laughs> from your community, from someone who is outside of that community. I'd love to know as well, like, what was your favourite part of writing the book? Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> I mean, it was, I enjoyed every minute of it. I think that it, in some ways it almost didn't even feel real until I, I got the physical copy of it. I did my honours at uni two years ago and it, so it sort of felt the same. I was like working on the same project for a year and similarly doing a lot of interviews and hearing these amazing stories and, and writing it, whatever, and then you kind of <laughs> submit it to, I submitted it to my editor and whatever and it kind of was like, okay, like, oh, I've just done my honours again. That's what it felt like and then <laughs> when the book, the book physically ended up in my hands, that was what like this quite an overwhelming moment because I was like, oh wow, it's actually real. Like I did it, and this time I'm <laughs> unlike the honors. I didn't pay to do it. I'm getting paid, which is nice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and now you know anyone can see it and and touch it and take something from it, and that's all I I want. So I think one of the other special moments is the first time I saw Rachel Sarah's artwork. I think that her, from the cover to every page that she's given these beautiful pieces of art, it really brought it to life. The design work done on it by the Hardy Grant team too. That it, it just I could never have pictured it to to look and feel so beautiful. And I think that the color palette just kind of reflects the the warmth and the positivity and hope that I, I hope the the language kind of exudes as well so yeah that that to me I think was the, really the magic ingredient for what it's become uh, is that that color and that life to all of it as well. 
I was wondering as well, because you do podcasts and you write words, did you just jump on the chance to create a project that was so visual as well? Yeah, I, I don't know. Like that was just a suggestion that that my publisher had had come up with because they also did Marcia Langton's Welcome to Country. And if you've ever seen that book, the cover of it is phenomenal and it's really beautiful. And I you know, remember going into their offices in Melbourne, the first kind of few conversations, and so many of their books are, are visually striking. And But I also think that there's an element of of the visual component as well that makes it a little bit more inclusive for people who aren't necessarily big readers and are I think it's just a bit more engaging or and the way it's it's split up as well with those artworks and like just chunks of of quotes and things like that means that if it's a, a bit too much for one sitting or whatever for maybe younger readers and things like that they can just take one thing from it so I think probably also my my Instagram life as well sees that <laughs> and goes oh yeah that's really good for social media which is just the way the world is as well like to be honest like sounds silly and and kind of redundant but I wasn't ever worried about sales or marketing when it comes to this like it's a labor of love and I just wanted to make sure I did the women justice and I was really stoked if I sold one copy and but the the visual element of it tells a story in itself and and seeing that on social media and and kind of seeing this the spread of you know these women's stories and which kind of tells a, a broader message that these are not famous women. They're not high-profile women that I t- talk to. They're everyday women, and there's something extraordinary in the everyday. I think that's that's the thing that I care most about is is spreading that message. And I hope every time that someone you know does post a photo of it or, or talks about it, that that's what's championed. Yeah, it definitely makes it more of a like I guess a magazine style or a coffee table style yeah. book where you can just kind of dip in and dip out of it and maybe that can just be that little thing that like piques someone's interest because it is so colourful and so beautiful and then that's just a way into this whole world that you're sharing with us. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think it's that's kind of in the same vein what had made us successful on Instagram, obviously it's such a visual platform, but it is that, oh, look at this beautiful photo. And then you start reading the caption and you get this bit of an education and this bit of an inspiration from the language and the story that's being told there. So yeah, I hope in the same way, that's how it works. This is a soft entry for people, again, who've, who've not had much experience with our community and maybe are just starting a, a new journey. I think this year and the the way that the Black Lives Matter movement has really cemented itself in an Australian context is seeing a lot more people being interested in understanding what's happening in this country and what their role is and and what they can do as an individual to do better. So yeah, I, I hope that this book just kind of adds to a plethora of entire library of, of other texts and resources that are out there for people to start their education and yeah, start expanding their minds. And also, if you want to support an Indigenous Australian in a real way, you can buy their book. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Hello, Ran here to talk about our Patreon page. Patreon is just a way that you can help support the podcast for as little as $1 US a month. Higher tiers get access to extra special content as well as a listing on our website and a shout out on the podcast. If you'd like to help us with a small monthly donation, just go to patreon.com slash flow artist podcast and join the fun.
If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can just share this episode on social media, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or just reach out and let us know your thoughts on this or anything else. All right, let's get back to our conversation with Marley. So was, what was the hardest part of writing the book? I think the pressure of telling other people's stories, the irony being that I kind of was doing that every day on the Instagram, but this is so much bigger and you just want to make sure you're doing it justice. I really wanted to make sure that I was doing my grandmother's stories justice as well and, and making my family proud. I think that was the thing that was the hardest. And then on a more <laughs> technical level, just the back and forth of like one line things with an editor. Oh my God. It was so, <laughs> I got to a point where I was like, oh my God, I, I can't read anything I've written ever again. I hate it. Like I've looked at it too many times. I don't want to know. Like if you're changing a few words, just change it. Like I don't, I can't even handle it anymore. <laughs> like that, that was something that was, yeah, a bit of a, bit of a nightmare. Just the, that's the kind of pedantic stuff that you, you you don't experience unless you're you're writing a book because it's just like this one line on this the fourth paragraph down on the 100th page and you're like I don't know what that is I can't remember what I was writing there can't please stop (laughs) (laughs) because to read it it just seems so effortless and so conversational like you'd never know there was all that behind the scenes like slog and struggle well well, writing it right like because you're having conversations with these women and like that that's such a great inspiration like i came home from a few of the interviews and just like wrote it in one sitting because it was so great and and really fired me up and whatever so the actual you know writing of each chunk of it was quite I wouldn't say easy but it came without so much effort because I was really passionate about everything that I'd heard and then it was kind of like piecing them together and what order do they go in and what does it look like and you're like okay this is starting to get a little bit tedious and then it's just the line by line like proofreading stuff which I just didn't want to ever do ever again (laughs) (laughs) nice and perhaps we could talk about your podcast always was always will be our stories and titus for titus could you describe them to our listeners who might not be familiar yeah, so I got introduced to the podcasting world with Titters for Titters. And so those were, uh, I did two seasons with the Mamma Mia Network for that podcast. And it saw me sit down with a range of, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. And we just kind of have a conversation similar to the one that we're having now about their life, about their career and what inspires them and their advice to the next generation in particular. And that was so fantastic. And I learned so much with a team of producers and a marketing team and and all this sort of stuff and people to make things for our socials and all that sort of stuff and after I got a taste for it and actually from the get-go I had in my mind and you know clearly had conversations with Mamma Mia about wanting to get to a point where I felt upskilled enough to be able to run the podcast by myself and and do it 100% Aboriginal owned and run and I felt that I'd gotten to that point after the second season, which finished early this year, just before good old Rona came along. Mm-hmm. And then I thought I'd sit on it for a, a couple of months and I'd just been doing some work with Spotify. So they were helping me out and just around brainstorming and things like that through that experience as well. And, and I, you know, we were all of a sudden, I lost a lot of work because of the shutdown and and I was panicking and had so much time on my hands 
so I decided, okay, the, this, this is the time to go out on your own and, and just do your own podcast from the comfort of my bedroom. <laughs> so I bought my USB mic and had, had a few conversations with Spotify and they told me a few free programs I could use. And I went, all right, let's just start reaching out to people. So the always was, always will be our stories is a play on this year's NADOC theme, which is always was, always will be. And the the difference being that this version of my podcast definitely isn't as polished and, and doesn't isn't the greatest audio quality or the fanciest or whatever, but it, it, it's very much the same sorts of conversations that I was having with Titus for Titus, the podcast just this time around. I also have male guests. So it's it's been the highlight of my year. I mean, aside from obviously my book coming out, um, but being able to produce this podcast and so much learning that's come with it and being everything from interviewer to editor to the whole bit has been really fun and it ended up being a lot of work once the shutdown kind of eased and I started getting other work coming through. But, yeah, we've done 11 episodes for this year and taking a bit of a break at the moment and, yeah, it's they've been – the best conversations that I've had because I find when it's sort of, again, in the same format that we're doing now, virtually people are in the comfort of their own home. I was sort of <laughs> a little bit overwhelmed because I'd sent out messages to a whole bunch of people, some of who I knew personally and others who were just kind of pipe dreams of people I really wanted to have on the show and expected maybe one or two to come back to me and then everyone was ready and wanted to be a part of it. So that that was quite overwhelming. I ended up recording 10 episodes over 10 days or something ridiculous. Oh, oh my wow. gosh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so it was like, oh great, I've got all these audio files and I like looked at them. I was like, oh God, I have to edit all, edit all of that. That's a nightmare. But again, I had a lot of time on my hands, so it was fine. But yeah, it was I love these conversations so much and I love the way that each of my guests gives so much of themselves and I had a similar experience with the women I interviewed for the book. Just this generosity and this desire to share in order to give something to someone else, which is is so, so amazing. So, yeah, I love it. And in in a selfish way, I I love having the conversations with these people and connecting to them and and having the, the honor of listening to them but then also being able to share it with the world. It's it's so, so great. And we've been able to kind of leverage that voice to see action with it. So a lot of the time the the guests that I have have their own projects that they're working on or nonprofits or something they're really passionate about that they want to talk about. And so we use the podcast as one to tell their story, but also to direct people to how they can assist in whatever way to whatever issue it is that they're talking about. So that's a, a great element of it as well. And, yeah, I, I I felt a little bit personally attacked when that ABC video came out about don't start a podcast in isolation because I did that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's it's I definitely don't regret it. I think as well, like the thing that you just touched on about like the kind of slightly more activist angle, I think when someone really connects with someone on that personal level, I mean, when you're listening to a podcast, most people are doing it in their car or on their headphones. So it's like this really intimate experience, like someone is speaking to you, you just connect so much more with who they are and their story, much more so than if you're reading it on a screen or reading it in a newspaper. Like I think that's one of the really awesome things about this medium. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. That being able to hear the tone of someone's voice and how they I, I love listening back and, and hearing the excitement in someone's voice and the passion and and yeah, that that sort of stuff. I think and and I think that's why podcasts have become so successful in the last couple of years is because we're all moving at such a fast pace and, and not a lot of the time do we have the time to sit down and read a book or even read the paper or whatever. So if we can be moving around and listening to people and connecting with them that way, it's a way to feel a bit more human and, yeah, even in our, the crazy lives that we have. It's a great thing to do on your hour a day exercise walk as well. I've listened to a few of your podcasts on my <laughs> exercise walk. I really like your one with the people from Coming Out Black, which is like a queer Indigenous podcast that they started. I thought that was a really nice one. And I think if you're in isolation, it is like a cool way to feel connected to this like whole bigger world that's going on outside of yourself and people have really different lives to yours. But still, there's always something in there that you can identify with and that you can connect with. Like it's really, I feel like you're doing some good things for everyone's mental health, you know, <laughs> with everything that you share. Oh, I hope so. Yeah. I've, I mean, I, that, that's a big part of my, my own well-being is, is being able to listen to other people for, for strength and, yeah, a, a bit of normality I think is probably the thing we've been that's the thing I've been craving the most in the last little while is just to feel a bit normal and just I think I had someone message me after I did the episode with Nakia Louis-Miranda Tapsell, which was like so huge and not something that I thought would happen. I didn't even reach out to them because I was like, there's no way I'm going to get big hitters like that, but they actually reached out to me, which was insane and I was so nervous for that interview and I thought I sounded really nervous but it went pretty well and I had a few people message me after that saying that they felt they loved that episode because they felt like they were just sitting around with girlfriends having a cup of coffee and listening to it and and that to me is so so successful then because we were talking about you know a few things that were pretty tricky and, and in some ways he heavy topics in there but I'm I'm so stoked that we were able to deliver them in a way that was not adding pressure onto people, especially in this this world that we're in now. And it was there was comfort in it and people were able to kind of switch off from the rest of the world and just enjoy it as well. So I think that's probably what I aim for. Being able to, again, similar to the book, it, it's a soft entry to difficult conversations and it's in a space that's safe for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people as it's ab about, for me, comfort for them and, and them being completely happy with whatever the final product sounds like is, is the most important thing. And then I think that's why the, the conversations, yeah, come come out the way that they do is everyone's comfortable, everyone feels safe and there's no there's, – there's something as well in the little bit of distance from the listener and the guest so they can talk about particular things. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, some people still listen to these sorts of conversations in order to offer their own rebuttal or perspective or to counteract what people have to say. But the guests don't have to face that if that's what they want to do because they have to look after themselves and their own energy. So I think I think that little bit of distance is really important as well. And, yeah, I, I mean, I love I love the medium. I, I'm so glad, like, that I was given the opportunity early last year to – dive into what a podcast is really about like I didn't even really know what a podcast was um, you know back then I mean I, I listened to a couple but I didn't really fully get it 
with the exception of like the teacher's pet. That was like the only one I'd probably listened to. And now I really see it as such a, such a powerful medium that can, yeah, can really make people think in a different way. And you, you obviously work on all these different mediums. Do you have a favorite? I, I do love audio. I really love audio. And I mean, I also uh, sometimes do some DJ presenting on uh, Triple J, which is really fun and kind of a random thing that sort of came out of my podcasting as well as I kind of got poached by Triple J to get trained up and um, go in the studio every once in a while. It's often the midnight shift, but I do get a couple of ones during the day. And I, for me, that, that has made me a better podcaster because the live element, you, you just have to be way more confident in what you're saying and, and not second guess yourself. And yeah, I, I love doing that. I really love radio and the, yeah, definitely the audio element of story, storytelling is, is really, yeah, my favorite. And you seem really dedicated to like uplifting others and creating this really supportive community, especially with your own guests. But I actually saw recently that you've received quite a bit of negativity online recently and just had to take a break from the internet in general. Is is this something that you'd like to talk about? And especially, would you like to share some of the strategies that you've used to cope like in this challenging time? Yeah, I mean... I think probably for starters, it's, you know, I've, I've talked about titters for titters quite a bit and anyone who listens to this probably would naturally go and look for the page, but it's currently deactivated. Some stuff that started as as questions of of myself and my sister got really, really personal and, and quite vicious very quickly. And I think that it's, I mean, it ended up just being straight up cyberbullying that that was really, really awful. And yeah, wasn't prepared for it. I think I probably was a bit naive on the size of our platform and also was perceiving it as, as still the side hobby that it started as and where we started being treated like we were an organization, which <laughs> would have been fine if I did have a team who was running the page and PR strategy and and something that could protect me. But instead, these quite awful messages about me not really being black because of my skin color, really quite disgusting comments about my mother and her whiteness. And similarly about my father for being a police officer were coming directly to me, which no human being on this earth. I wouldn't wish it on my own worst enemy. I think it's taught me a lot, particularly around maybe the ways that I've seen people do sort of that call out culture or cancel culture on really high profile celebrities. I think that I didn't, I never, it's never something I participated in or I thought was particularly productive, but now being on the receiving end on of this, this cancel culture that regardless of, of whether the, the claims being made by people are true, in which in this case I won't get into it, but it was pretty ridiculous and most of it very, very false. And the only true part was that my sister did really go to an Australia Day party when she was 14 and that was what got dragged, which just seems ridiculous and is a whole other kettle of fish. But even if someone has done the wrong thing, I think that there's absolutely – no excuse for this public shaming and I've seen people get death threats and and awful things online and people say a lot 
that they would never say in person because they feel protected by a keyboard and, and things like that. And having gone through this, I, I really feel for people who have received that stuff because it, it's something that, yeah, I, I've never had anything affect me in the way that this has. And yeah, so I had to deactivate the page for myself and to be able to sleep at night, really. And I've been quite frustrated in the last couple of weeks because I haven't had the emotional capacity to be able to even do work, to be able to go on my emails, to be able to respond to people's messages and things like this, who even those who are checking in on me. I, I can't at the moment and I'm, I'm really lucky that I have an incredible psychologist who very much understands the situation and I, I constantly have their voice in my head saying to me, you need to be patient with yourself, Molly, because what you've faced is a type of assault. It looks a different way and it's a new new world uh, with the online stuff, but it's that's what it is. You've, you've had your character assaulted. Um, so I, I'm trying to take it slowly and, and one step at a time and I'm being really honest about it. I think that that's really important. That's it's it's funny because my my personal profile like online like in a more literal sense on, on my Instagram it grew really really quickly at the beginning of this year sort of with Black Lives Matter and I, I found it really like uncomfortable to think that there was like 16,000 people who were looking at my Instagram or whatever and I still feel weird about that but I also understand the responsibility in the fact that there's more people who hear my voice for me to be honest about the fact that I'm not okay at the moment that I'm really struggling that today being on this podcast like that's the one thing I could do today I have to really take it a day at a time and I'm I'm used to operating at a really really high level and being able to juggle so many different things and and prior to this I was working six day weeks which is completely unhealthy and not sustainable and probably a good thing that I'm not doing that anymore but I'm finding myself being frustrated with not being able to do a million jobs at once because that's what I usually do so it's a shift and it's really difficult and I am so lucky and value my support network and my family so much because it just I there's no way I'd be able to get through it without them but yeah it's it's been <laughs> insane and there's some things that I have to just kind of go, oh, my God, like, of course, it's 2020. Of course this is going to happen. It's, this is this year. Everyone's going through it. We're all just facing so much crap. And sometimes when you are going through your own thing, you kind of get frustrated when people say, oh, well, there's people who are worse off and whatever, whatever. But I'm finding I don't, <sighs> comfort's not the right word, but it's the only word I can think of in that and, and feeling that, we are all in this together in our own different ways that we're struggling with things. So it's, yeah, it's in a lot of ways I'm kind of like, oh, I can't believe this has happened and I just want to be able to wake up tomorrow and be able to handle it all and whatever, but I'm not going to be able to. It's going to take a really long time. But I'm also proud of myself in the sense that this time, three weeks ago, there's no way I could have been on this podcast or been able to talk about this in the way that I am right now. But I so said that's the, the good step. I've, I've taken it this way and we just want to do better and, and get back to doing what we love. So that's my hope and it's, yeah, however long it takes and whatever means of change it takes as well, we're, we'll get there eventually. But, yeah, I would recommend to to people, I think the onus is put on the victim 
of of cancel culture or cyberbullying or whatever it is you want to call it to turn off the the your social media account or to to step away from it whatever whatever and I think there's a, a big problem with that because it gives these people legs it gives them more space to do what they do so that's really complicated and and in terms of strategies I, I think maybe before this I would have been like it's not you shouldn't have to be the one who takes themselves offline like this person is the one who's done the wrong thing but that's what I had to do to get through it is to really just turn everything off and be quite yeah be complete basically completely offline and I slowly get back to occasionally looking at things but I tell you what has been a silver lining if you guys have iPhones, you would know mm-hmm. that on a Sunday you usually get like your weekly screen time report of like how you've been on your phone this many hours a week or whatever. Mine is down so low. I'm very <laughs> proud of that. I'm really stoked with it. So that's a <laughs> definitely <laughs> a silver lining of it all. Oh, I just want to say like thank you so much because like hearing how if this is the one thing that you're doing today, we really appreciate you taking the time and your energy to share with us. And I think just hearing about your experiences, should someone else be going through that in a smaller way because maybe they don't have as big a profile or in a different way, just it's that same thing that's been coming up again and again. Like you're not alone. Like everyone navigates this stuff in different ways and reaching out to help to a psychologist is so powerful kind of knowing that it's not you're not failing if you shut down your social media presence for a while like sometimes that's what you've got to do for your self-care even if like you your job kind of is in media so like I'm sure that was a really hard decision especially losing a lot of work over COVID just to like take this time for yourself and I think for people to see that and to see someone else prioritize their own personal mental health and emotional well-being over their mission, over this thing that they've put so much energy and so much passion in so that they can come back to that in time when they are ready and when they do have energy and capacity, like seeing that modelled is really powerful. Uh, Well, yeah, thank you. It's it's something I'm only able to do because of the the support around me. I think I, I have such a privilege of an incredible family and a really close family unit that is as passionate about the work that I do as I am and they want just want me to be able to do it as well and yeah it's I think that it it doesn't matter whether you have a high profile or not unfortunately a lot of people fall victim to to this sort of stuff and it is it's awful it's it's crap and I think that we can't underestimate the impact that it can have on us and I I just hope that even if you think someone's done some horrible thing just think about what your words can do. I think that we need to take into account all of the facts and, and not jump on top of things so quickly because I think that's that's a big part of the problem is this sort of if it's if it's online then it's 100% true and whatever. There's no right of reply in this sort of cancel culture world and, and all that sort of stuff, which is really dangerous. And I particularly worry about young people. I, I'm so thankful there was no Instagram when I was at high school because I think that would have just added to the pressure of, of being a teenager. And I think about those young people now who have all this social media and are open and, and vulnerable to this at such a young age. And that's why we see such horrendous statistics in our youth suicide that are even accentuated more because of COVID. It's so terrible. And that's 
I think that there's a probably a chance that I come across as someone who is completely confident in, in saying like, oh yeah, like I'm seeing a psychologist and this is tough, but it's, we're getting through whatever, whatever. So I probably sound like I have it a lot more together than I do at the moment, but I, but I know my responsibility is to talk about it because of the next generation, because there are a lot of young girls who look up to me or, or listen to what I have to say. So yeah. And I'm, I'm thankful that I'm able to talk about it in the way that I am. And I just, yeah, I just hope that people come to realize that, that what you do online, even though it might not feel real, does have real world impact. And we just got to be nice to each other because this year sucks. And we, we've all had to go through horrible things and you never know what's happening in someone's life. So just like, Think about your own energy and whether it's worth it to to use it to try and tear someone down or or whether it's better off for something else. So it's, yeah, it's <laughs> it's just been so crazy and I just, yeah, I, I hope that we can, we can all get to the other side of this year and be better off and for me personally, I guess, come back from this stronger and smarter and, and able to, to do more. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. We definitely want to be more kind to each other. So to change the topic slightly though, a lot of our listeners are yoga and meditation teachers and I feel there's some parallels with your own values because it seems like connecting to who you are as an individual while connecting to community and connecting to nature is at the heart of what you share. Would you like to speak to this a little bit? Yeah, I guess. I mean, like considering that context, I will say that I'm new entering the, the meditation world through this kind of tough period. And it's, yeah, I've always found it really hard to switch off. So I really admire people who are, have really, are so dedicated and, and kind of do that sort of work and are able to be so mindful like that. So that's, that's my goal at the moment is to be a lot more mindful. And yeah, I think that as an Aboriginal person, the, this, there's a, very much a spirituality that's connected to country and being on country and just out in the space and out in nature, I guess, is, yeah, it's so, so important to, to all of us. And it examples itself in, in very different ways and connecting. And that's kind of a sense of our sense of community and, and this concept of being one mob and being connected is about history and is about bloodlines and and also about the resilience that connects us as, as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as well. So yeah, there's a lot kind of in there that that's quite specific to to who we are and what our community is. But if you're if you live somewhere in Australia, you you live on Aboriginal land. And I think that obviously connections to land are, are very different for non-Indigenous people who are not traditional owners of this country, but there's something in in the beauty and the peace and the history of the land that we each live on that we can all connect to and that we can all have value for and and I I really appreciate people who love the land like we do even though it's different but you know that that love and passion for country is is what I hope will help us protect a lot more of it obviously we've we've lost so much in the fires and we lose a lot more to mining and things like that and it's people who do have that connection and care and consciousness of of the the natural environment around them that are going to help protect us protect it for the future and the future generations so yeah i think 
yeah, that's that's where I'm at on on that page. I feel like I'm rambling again, but I know that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I was I was doing a bit of research on you and I was like scrolling through your Instagram and you shared a post. I hope I'm saying this right. It was like a gum leaf cleansing that you did and you were doing, it was like a self-care project in isolation, which I really should have had this information (laughs) in front of me, but it looked like different ways to connect to nature and to connect to culture that one mob was sharing online that you could kind of tune into like and it often we see like 30-day challenges on Instagram with yoga it obviously wasn't like that but I think maybe a lot of people don't realize how online a lot of Aboriginal people are and how if you do want to learn more there's so much on Instagram and on Facebook and if you want to directly learn about activism and you want a way to support people who are standing up against mining organizations right now like it's all out there like you might be able to list some more resources and like I'll put a couple of the Instagrams that I follow in our show notes because it is a way that if you're like it's not my culture but I really honor it and respect it and really want to do everything that I can for our country because this is the way to protect our environment for all of us. But yeah, like there's a lot of people out there sharing and it's actually quite easy to learn more and to learn the ways that you can help as an individual in your own little home to connect to this wider community and this wider culture and this land that we share. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. I don't my question is there, but um. oh, well, I guess like just to add to that, what people probably don't realize is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people per capita are the highest users of social media in the country. So we we are very present online, and there's so many people. This there's been this real surge in people sharing online about this sort of stuff. Off the top of my head, someone that I think would be really quite relevant to to this audience of of meditators and, and yoga instructors is Alira Potter. She's a, an Aboriginal woman based in Melbourne who is a spiritual healer and, and does a lot of sharing about that sort of stuff and about her kind of mindfulness practices and, and yeah, the way that she kind of engages with, th- th- it's sort of this balance between traditional knowledge and, and kind of more modern and maybe even more western kind of spirituality as well which is really interesting and I've probably butchered what she does a little bit but I would highly recommend she she does she shares so much that's really interesting I think a lot of people who listen to this would find interesting as well cool definitely we're gonna look her up (laughs) (laughs) I guess we've got one more question which we normally ask at the end of our episode. So if you could distill everything that you've learned and everything that you teach down to one core lesson, what do you think that one thing would be? Oh, that's so hard. <laughs> I think, I mean, I'm learning all the time so that you could ask me this question tomorrow and it would be a different answer. But I guess for non-Indigenous people, you know, because obviously a big part, of of what I do is is provide a voice or or talk about this sort of stuff for for non indigenous people to to learn and and to grow and I think for them I, I would say that I and particularly considering everything that's happened this year that this is such a potentially really exciting and and 
quite a profound moment in our history where we are having this big shift and I just encourage everyone to go out and and seek this learning and, and keep looking to grow and and to listen and to really listen to Aboriginal voices and and listen to learn rather to res- than to respond. I think that's that's really important. It's probably I'm often asked by non-Indigenous people what they can do and that's my biggest advice is listen and listen to to learn and then use your your own powers whatever they are to to continue spreading whatever it is that you you learn and encourage other people to do the same fantastic well thank you so much thank you for all the work that you're doing and yeah thanks for spending some time with us today it's been great talking to you yeah thanks so much Marley and you know how you mentioned how a podcast is such a good chance to reach out to these people who you admire and you respect but you would never normally have this chance to talk to reaching out to you was totally that for me so (laughs) thank you so much for um giving us this opportunity to learn from you no thank you so much for for having me and yeah no i'm really glad to be able to come on i hope you enjoyed our conversation with marley i certainly learned a lot and joe and i are both honored that ours was the first conversation she has had since experiencing that cyberbullying that she talked about and that she was willing to share with us it sounds like a terrible experience for anyone to go through so we both send our love and best wishes to marley For our next episode, we are speaking with Divya Kohli. Divya is a yoga teacher based in London and author of the book, Finding Peace in Difficult Times, Grounding Techniques for Inner Calm. It's a great read with lots of simple and powerful techniques to downregulate the nervous system and navigate these challenging times. Look out for that episode in a fortnight. Our theme song is Baby Robots by Go Soul and is used with permission. Get his music from gosoul.bandcamp.com. Thank you so, so much for listening. Joe and I really appreciate you spending your precious time with us. Aroha nui. Big, big love. <laughs> <laughs>